How do you define success? That's a question that Gallup and Populous asked thousands of Americans in 2019. They found that there is a stark difference between how Americans define success and how they believe others in society define success. We always think worse of others and better of ourselves, right? Most Americans uh, surveyed believe others in society define success in status-oriented terms, but less than 10% said they applied that standard to their personal definition of success. The study revealed that there is no average definition of success in our culture. Instead, everyone tends to have a highly unique personal view of success. Important areas listed by many uh, respondents included education, relationships, and character. So how do you define success? I ask because there's a lot of talk about success in our passage tonight. Now, we read it. And we read it as a story of an innocent young man being falsely accused of a crime and unjustly imprisoned. That's a pretty stark difference from what I usually think is successful. But God's commentary on this whole situation at the beginning and at the end is Joseph is doing great. Joseph is a successful man, the Bible says, and he's in a very exciting position. Really? He's a slave and a prisoner. How is that success? Is the Lord giving us some PR spin here, trying to make the best of a bad situation? Well, of course not. What God considers success is brought home to us as uh, Christians here tonight, uh, as Bible-believing disciples. It's brought home to us when we read in the New Testament the apostles' descriptions of the Christian life and what successful Christian life looks like. Paul said, I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. I am bound to serve the Lord as a slave for the rest of my life. Peter, James, John, and Jude all said the same thing in their letters. In Romans 6, Paul went even further and he said this, thanks be to God that we Christians have become slaves to righteousness. In three of his letters, Paul also identified himself as the Lord's prisoner And he then invited Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, to share in the sufferings of the gospel. So let's see how God can call being a slave and a prisoner success as we read Genesis 39. We begin in verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken to Egypt. An Egyptian named Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. So we're going back 20 years from or so from the end of chapter 38. As we talked about last time, chapters 38 and 39 happen at the same time chronologically. And our story now focusing on Joseph picks back up right after he was sold by his brothers. And, and he had a very hard time in this transition, obviously. But in Psalm 105, uh, it, it speaks about just the, the, the suffering and the difficulty that Joseph endured during this time. As far as being trafficked goes, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. That doesn't mean it wasn't bad. It was, but it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Joseph wasn't sent to a copper mine. He wasn't sent to a granite quarry. He was bought into a wealthy and prominent house of an important Egyptian official. Now, linguists struggle a little bit with what Potiphar's job really was, because the Hebrew words just say that he was the chief slaughterer. I love that. So what does that mean? Well, what does it mean to be the chief slaughterer? 
Uh, some suggest that it's possible that Potiphar was actually Pharaoh's butcher, uh, in, similar to the chief baker we're going to see in the next passage. Uh, but most commentators believe that he was actually the chief executioner for Pharaoh and captain of Pharaoh's guards, and that's reflected in most of our translations. I'm guessing that your translation calls him the captain of the guard, like mine does. And there's also significant, uh, significant evidence in the text to indicate that Potiphar was, in fact, a eunuch. This was a common practice in these ancient societies. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, serving in the household of his Egyptian master. So Joseph became a successful man, yet he had no wealth, no freedom, no friends, no family, and no escape plan. As the tale unfolds, we'll see Joseph had no intention of fleeing back to Canaan. He wasn't taking, you know, sockfuls of, of, of the wall that he was carving out to get a hole through that he could run out one day. He wasn't doing that. No plan to escape, uh, no prison break, and, you know, he's not drawn maps or anything like that. In fact, we kind of find in, in chapter 41 when he has sons and he's naming them, and we get a little bit of a window into what Joseph is thinking and what Joseph is feeling, it seems like he was content to forget his home and his family. And he's like, man, thank the Lord that I have these, this family now and I can forget my old home, I can forget my old family. That's what happens in chapter 41. So what made Joseph successful was that God was with him and that God was working in his life. So, so the Lord looks down on Joseph's situation and says, man, Joseph is a really successful man. Well, okay, so what's going on? God says, well, I'm with him. That's what makes him successful. And, and I'm doing things in his life that are having a great impact, not only on his life, but on the lives of the people around him. And that's what made him successful. And, and about 2,000 years later, when Stephen, the first martyr of the church age, was speaking to the people who would ultimately kill him, he started talking about Joseph. And he said that during this time, God was with Joseph and that he was rescuing him from all his troubles. It certainly doesn't look like it to us, but this is the, the testimony of Scripture. In God's mind, success is all about our nearness to him and his ability to accomplish his will in and through us. Despite the danger Joseph was in, despite the dead-endedness of his situation from the human perspective, we see that Joseph uh, was not only near to God and not only successful in God's eyes, but we see also that he had a deep and abiding faith in his Lord. He may not have understood why the things were happening that were happening in his life, but he certainly believed that God was still real, God was still with him, God was still present, God was still worth obeying and honoring and trusting. He demonstrates that in the way he speaks to people. He demonstrates that in the way that he acts and the choices that he makes and the way he wants to live uprightly, even though he's held captive and been trafficked into slavery in Egypt. He still believes God. One study Bible put it this way, successful here does not mean wealthy, but that Joseph was making progress in his situation. He was making progress because the Lord was with him. The Lord had been with Abraham, and he came to Isaac, and he said, I was with your father. I'm going to be with you. And he had been with Jacob. Even Jacob in his spiritual infancy could look at his life, and he says, man, the Lord has been with me everywhere I have gone. 
And, and God had not only promised that to the people, He had also proven it to be true. And here's the best part. This is not just for Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. It is for you. Jesus Christ Himself has said the exact same thing to you and to me. He says, I am with you. I am God with you, Emmanuel, and I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you always to the end of the age. Right? So that same proven promise that Joseph was experiencing is absolutely true for you and for me today. And that's the best part of it. He is with you, and God being with you is what brings true success to a life, real success that really matters. Verse 3, when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful, Joseph found favor with his master and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. From the time that he put him in charge of his household and all uh, that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house because of Joseph. The Lord's blessing was on all that he owned in his house and in his fields. He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Hold there. At this point, Joseph is somewhere between 17 and 20 years old. Clearly, God has gifted him with incredible maturity and administrative skill. How many 19-year-olds do you know that could balance a checkbook and run a house, right? So this is, this is a remarkable young man, obviously. And he would end up benefiting from this experience of running the household and then later the prison, right? He's going to administrate a prison too. And he would later you know, benefit from those experiences when he's given the task of administrating an entire nation, right? The, the nation of Egypt. But still, it's not that God had to get him into this slave administration job first so that he could graduate him to Egypt, right? Um, we want to be careful not to always assume that any suffering or any difficulty that's happening in our lives must be something that God purposefully caused in our lives in order to level us up so that we can accomplish something else later. That's just not the case, right? Because we need to be really careful before we turn around and blame God for something negative that's happening in our lives. God is sovereign, and nothing happens outside of His charge, right? Right? The Lord is king. He is in charge. Absolutely. But we want to be really careful when we say this terrible thing happened and God did it on purpose. He put his thumb down on the button and made that happen to me. And it must have happened because I'm going to connect a dot from A to B. We want to be careful about that because we don't know the mind of God and we don't know everything about what's going on. And sometimes suffering is a result of our fallen world and, our, and the sin around us and the consequences of that sin that have been bearing sinful fruit for thousands of years of human history, right? And here's a little example of this, a compare and contrast. It's not that God said, well, I have to get Joseph in level one of slave administration, then graduate him to level two of slave administration until finally he can be at level a million of slave administration. Because look at Daniel. Daniel had effectively the same ending position that Joseph had. He was taken as a captive, but then immediately put into that, that second-in-command position almost, right, in the book of Daniel. He didn't have to do this level-up stuff. 
And so, of course, Joseph would have benefited from this experience, but we just want to be careful. We don't want to make the theological mistake of thinking that it's always God causing a trial or tribulation in, to happen to us so that he can give me a special ability. God's not video gaming through our lives, right? That's not what's happening. These are the events that happened to Joseph, uh, and, and the Lord is recording those for us, and he did benefit from them, but we want to be theologically careful about what we accuse God of doing. In the midst of suffering, God's work in Joseph's life rippled out to the edges of Potiphar's estate. It wasn't just the work that Joseph did. It said, man, everything he did to his fields, all his belongings, everything he did from sun up till sundown, man, the Lord was working through Joseph's life. And it was so evident that this pagan executioner could see, man, the Lord is with this kid. I lucked out, right? I lucked out when I bought this kid. It's like the opposite of uh, Star Wars Episode Four. So Star Wars Episode Four, what happens? It, it begins with a slave auction, gross. Like, well, should we cancel Star Wars? They're glorifying the slave, like the slave trade. They take the droids and they traffic them to Luke Skywalker's uncle who's buying stolen droids. That's shady, right? But this is the opposite of what happens. So he buys the stolen droids and then five minutes later, him and his wife are burned alive by the empire, right? Spoiler alert, it was like 1979, I'm sorry. So it's the opposite. Potiphar buys some like banged up Hebrew slave kid and probably thinks, I'll get a little bit of work out of him and this kid's going to probably die. And, and instead he's like, man, the Lord God is with this kid. God wants to bless others through our lives. And, and he wants that when people look at us, for there to be a visible testimony of who he is and what he does. I mean, this is a plain teaching from both testaments of Scripture, that when an unbelieving world looks at your life, people can come to the conclusion that, you know what, there's a God, and He is real, and He works through that person's life, and I want to know more about that. I want to get closer to that God. I'm drawn to the power of that God and the grace of that God and the, and the truth of that God. Of course, sometimes the fragrance of, of God in the gospel is like death to people, and then they respond in the opposite way. They respond like the Jews did to Stephen and said, mm, we should probably murder this guy, right? That happens too. But in general, the point is that people should look at my life and look at your life and say, I see God working in that life visibly. I see it happening. It wasn't just true of Joseph and Abraham. It's true of our lives. Here are a couple of examples. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. We all know Jeremiah 29, 11, right? Probably have that on your, on, in your house on the wall somewhere. That's great. But page back a little bit. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. Pursue the well-being of the city I've deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Christians are given this command in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and for all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. How do they come to the knowledge of the truth? Through the preaching of the gospel through your life. In Philippians, we're told to look to the interests of others. Jesus Christ said in Matthew 5, let your light shine 
so that people may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And so it's very clear that our lives are supposed to proclaim the realness and the power of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, Potiphar was surrounded by false idols, filling his house, filling his workplace, everywhere they went, just tons of idols and statues and hieroglyphics and all of these things. He's surrounded by depictions of gods, right? And yet none of these Egyptian deities did a single thing to help Potiphar or to help his family or to help his crops or to help his nation. None of them. They were all mute. They were all motionless. They were all dead. There's a funny thing I was reading about how uh, during this time, one of the regular things that the Egyptian households would do, you would wake up in the morning and you would have to wake up your gods and you would bathe the idols and they would dress the idols. That's not a God that can help you. That sounds like a baby. You know what I mean? When you have a baby at home and you say, hang on, let's wake the baby up. Oh, they also gave the the little idols breakfast. They had to give them a little offering in the morning. So if you have a baby at home and you change its diaper and you wash it and you feed it and you get it all dressed in its cute little onesie, right? And then you say, okay, now baby, we need you to take care of the house for us. Baby can't help you, right? All it can do is scream at you and, and make you do more work for it. And that's effectively what what Potiphar is surrounded by gods like that. And then suddenly this Hebrew comes into his house and something's different. Something is very different, profoundly different. He has a God, a God I've never been exposed to before, but man, his God does things. His God promises things and then follows through on those promises. His God makes a difference through the the thoughts and the words and the actions and the life of his followers. And Potiphar said, you know what? There's, there is a real God. I'm surrounded by not real gods and there is a real God and he's working through that young man's life. And you know what? I need more of that in my life. So the question is, does my life proclaim that God is with me? Joseph's did. Is that a visible truth to the world around me? Or is in my life God functioning for me the way that Ra was functioning for Potiphar? Potiphar as a name means Ra has provided. Ra didn't provide anything for him. And Potiphar knew that all too well. So when people look at my life, do they assume that there is a real God who has revealed himself and he does things through his people? Or do people look at my life and say, that guy's pretty much the same as me, except for that he goes somewhere on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights that I don't go. Because there should be a profound difference between the gods of this world and the God of heaven and earth. It's meant to be as different as light is from darkness. Jesus said, you know what being a Christian is like? It's like being in a completely dark cave, and then suddenly someone turns on a light, and people say, wow, that's different. That's completely unlike everything else around it. God doesn't want his work in us to be stealth. He wants it to be self-evident because he desires that all people would be saved and he draws men to himself through the testimony and preaching of your life. Verse six continues. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. But he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, 
With me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house, and he has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He's withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. So how could I do this immense evil? How could I sin against God? Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. There's another element of Joseph's success here. He was very successful in overcoming temptation. Potiphar's wife came after him day after day after day. Though this is a very uncomfortable situation for him, it's very instructive for us, helpful for us to study. Because sometimes we convince ourselves, don't we, that we're really not strong enough to stand against temptation. That temptation, it just comes over you like a wave in the ocean and, oh, I got all topsy-turvy, what could I do? But that's not true. The Bible says that, that we are not tempted beyond what we can withstand, that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And we see examples like this, that you can stand against temptation. And you know what's great about this? Joseph couldn't even remove this temptation from his life. He had to endure it. He's a slave. He couldn't be like, you need to get out of here, right? So many times there's temptations in our life that we can just remove from our lives, We can get rid of that product, or we can turn off that connection, or we can do whatever. Joseph couldn't even remove the temptation, but he could refuse it, and refuse it he did every day because he had a firm belief system that told him how to navigate life. His faith determined what was right and what was wrong in his daily life. And so when this temptation came up, when this opportunity came up, he ran it quickly through the rubric of his faith. And he says, this is completely wrong. Of course, I wouldn't do that. And so the answer is no. It was no yesterday. It's no today. It's going to be no tomorrow. Now, Potiphar's wife, we're told, commanded him to sleep with her. And he said, I don't have to obey you because that would be a wrong thing, not just an offense against my boss who trusts me, not just an offense against him as a husband and you as his wife, but wrong morally and a sin against God. This chapter and the last has a lot to say about Uh, to us about guarding our sexuality and the dangers of going outside of God's boundaries in that area of life. The New Testament explains that sexual sin, sexual immorality is a unique set of sins in the sense that not only are you sinning against God and another person, but that you're also sinning against yourself when you commit these acts. And, And And we're told that God has called us not to impurity, but to holiness in regard to our sexuality. Ephesians says we are not to have even a hint of sexual immorality among us as God's people. When a person engages in sinful sexual activity, the Bible says they are rejecting God. They're not just simply making a choice about an activity. They are rejecting God. That's what we're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But listen, the, the God's teaching on sexuality is not all just about not doing something. Because when we do obey God's directives concerning our sexuality, 1 Corinthians tells us that we can glorify God with our bodies. And that's a wonderful thing. So what are the rules? Well, we live in a society where all sorts of sexual activity is celebrated, especially the perverse variety right now. So as Christians, what is God's definition of holy, successful sexual activity? The Bible's answer is very simple and very clear. It is the monogamous heterosexual union of one biological man with one biological woman in a relationship that is maintained as long as they both live. 
That's what the Bible commands. Very simple, very straightforward, very easy to follow, despite what our culture says. Verse 11 says, now, one day he went into the house to do his work and none of the household servants were there. So archaeologists have discovered a, an ancient papyrus from around this time period that gives a record of all the slaves and their jobs in one Egyptian house. Pretty neat. And it lists 80 slaves. Now, Potiphar was a big deal, big time official. He undoubtedly had dozens of slaves and workers in the home. So Potiphar's wife likely sent them all out so she could spring her trap. It would have been very unusual, been, would have been very suspicious, uh, would have been a, a strange day. Now, some commentators chide Joseph for being where he shouldn't be, but what was he supposed to do? He's a slave. He's got a job to do. When you're at your job and the people around you aren't doing their jobs and they're not working, do you say, well, I guess I don't need to work either, right? No, you do your job, Right? And so, and you're not even a slave <laughs> who's going to get beaten within an inch of his life if, if you don't do your job, right? So Joseph's being faithful. He goes in to do his work. Verse 12, she grabbed him by the garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. One scholar writes, Mrs. Potiphar becomes aggressive. She drags him by his clothes. The verb implies a forceful action. She was doing more than merely grabbing Joseph. So this is very aggressive, very violent activity. In response, Joseph runs for it. It was not the time to talk or reason with her. He had tried that before. We're way past that. It was time to remove himself from this situation. Joseph is to be commended, absolutely. Verse 13, when she saw that he had left his garment with her and had run outside, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make a fools of us. He came to me so he could sleep with me, and I screamed as loud as I could. When he heard me screaming for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. She put Joseph's garment beside her until his master came home. And then she told him the same story. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool out of me. But when I screamed for help, he left his garment beside me and ran outside. I think it's safe to say that everyone in the house knew what kind of lady Mrs. Potiphar was. It was almost undoubtedly her that had told everyone, make yourself scarce on Tuesday morning. I don't want to see you for the rest of the day. Go find something to do, right? They're not dumb. She's bold and brazen in her uh, desire to have an affair. The problem is now she's embarrassed. More importantly, she is potentially in very serious legal danger because adultery was a serious crime. So she starts building a case to frame Joseph. You know, in our culture right now, there's a lot of discussion about facts and truth, what's fake news, what's not, how there's two sides to every story, right? It's interesting. Mrs. Potiphar, she did have evidence, right? She did. She had evidence. Here it is right here. But what she said was a total lie. The truth about what really happened didn't come out for a long time. But the Lord knew, and the Lord loves truth, and he saw to it that what really happened was brought to light and recorded and proclaimed around the world through his scripture. So the encouragement to us is this. We can know the truth, and we want to keep the truth buckled around our waist and remember that the Lord knows, even when others might be believing a lie about you, the Lord knows the truth, and the truth sets us free. And so even if other people are believing lies about us, if we hold true and hold fast to the truth of the word, we're on good footing. 
Verse 19, when his master heard the story his wife told him, these are the things your slave did to me, he was furious. And he had Joseph thrown into prison where the king's prisoners were confined. So Joseph was there in prison. Who was Potiphar mad at? The language is ambiguous, maybe intentionally ambiguous. Let's remember that he was Pharaoh's executioner. He had a ton of authority. And this crime would have been a capital offense, not just in Canaan, not just among Israel, but in Egypt as well. Let's think back also about what we know about the context, a little bit of speculation, but things that maybe make sense. Potiphar was likely castrated. His marriage was probably political and social, right? It was probably an arranged thing for, that had to happen for political reasons. His wife was absolutely unafraid to have an affair. In fact, she was brash enough that Potiphar felt the need to specifically tell Joseph, you're going to be in charge of everything. You're in charge of the field. You're in charge of the house. Here's what we're going to do over here, left, right, and center. Uh, I need you not to sleep with my wife. So... Like, do you really need to say that to the slaves? Or is it that he knew that his wife was probably this kind of lady because of the arrangement that they had and the brashness of which she showed, and he felt the need to say, hey, my wife's probably going to solicit you. I need you to not sleep with her. So I'm specifically not allowing you to do that because this has happened before and I'd like it not to happen again. That's kind of the vibe you're getting here, right? And instead of killing Joseph, which would have been within his rights to do and within his power to do, would have made complete sense for him to do, he sends him to the political prison. In fact, some commentators think that Potiphar was actually the warden at that prison as the captain of the guards. And we'll see that the warden acts a whole whole lot like Potiphar does, gives Joseph all this administrative skill and, and responsibility, right? So who's Potiphar mad at? Seems like he's not really as mad at Joseph as he is perhaps mad at his wife. It was a lose-lose situation for everybody involved, right? Uh, Mrs. Potiphar doesn't get what she's looking for. Joseph's going to jail. Potiphar loses, you know, this incredible blessing to his house and the administrator. He's going to have to go back to doing work instead of just picking snacks out that he's eating every day. So it's lose-lose for everybody. What did Joseph think? He went from being the son of preference to a pit to a penthouse, to a prison, ultimately to a palace. As he was carted off to his cell, was that the end of his success? Had he slipped through the Lord's fingers of providence? Verse 21, but the Lord is with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor with the prison warden. The Septuagint version puts it this way, the Lord was with Joseph and poured down mercy upon him. Kindness or mercy there is that beautiful word for God's love, hesed, that we've talked about before. As far as the Lord was concerned, Joseph's story was still a success story, even now, even here. They were still together. He said, I'm still with you. In fact, God said, Joseph is right now experiencing a downpour of my faithful, tender love right here, right now in that prison. In verse 22 continues, the warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority. He was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and the Lord made everything that he did successful. There it is again, that word. God said, Joseph is a success. His life is a success. This does not square with what we are told in our culture and in our sinful hearts 
to think of what success is. We're told by our culture and our sinful hearts that success means more for me, upward for me, better comforts and circumstances for me, more power for me and people like me. And God here stands in total contradiction to those ideas in this passage. He tells us with bold block letters, Joseph was successful in this chapter two times. At the beginning and at the end, he's successful in Potiphar's house. He's successful in the prison. Why? Because I am with him. Success was measured in heaven, not by the strength of a stock performance, but by the strength of of faith's application in a life. It was measured not by earthly power, but by the presence of God in a life. The Lord would say, am I with you? Can people see my work in your life? Then you're successful. That's it. If that is the measure, and it is, our efforts in life will look a lot different than those of the unbelieving world around us because the goals are entirely different. The measurement is entirely different. The point is entirely different. It's not about us gaining or harvesting or moving up. It's simply about us being with the Lord who Proverbs 2 tells us stores up success for the upright. That's our God. That's our calling. 1 Corinthians says, you know what your calling is, Christian? Fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's the job. That's success. And you can be successful with an iron shackle around your neck, according to Psalm 105. That's what Joseph had to endure. And the Lord said, that's success. Because I'm with him and he's with me and I'm going to work through this life. I'm storing up success for the upright. He's doing that for you. It's not going to be what our selfish hearts want. It's not going to be what our culture shines down upon. It's going to be what he has revealed in his word. And it is altogether good.